You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm here with you on The Cave tonight and I'm joined by Emma Westwood. Hello. Good evening. And just me. It's just us tonight. Wow. We'll get up to trouble, won't we? I think, I, I think we might. Um, of course, Cerise Howard is a regular um, uh, host of ours. She's on. She's been away for a few weeks and one or two weeks more doing things. And, and Alexandra yeah. Helen Nicholas sends her apologies at the last minute. She had, had to duck out. Yes. So all the best to her and her family. And I'm sure she, I'm sure she had a lot to say about these movies as well. So um, a bit disappointed that we can't share it with Alex, but we'll share it with her after the show, no doubt. Exactly. Look, so tonight we're going to be looking at the new film by the acclaimed English filmmaker Andrea Arnold, American Honey. We will also continue our look at some of the films screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image as part of their Roman Ten Times Polanski season. We're going to be discussing his 1968 film Rosemary's Baby. But first, The Age of Shadows is the new film from South Korea by filmmaker Kim Ji-Woon, whose recent films include I Saw the Devil, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, and his one US film... The Last Stand. Set in Korea in the 1920s during the period of Japanese colonial rule, The Age of Shadows is an intricate spy thriller concerning Korean resistance fighters and the Japanese police. The central character is Captain Lee Jong-chul, a Korean working for the Japanese and played by Song Kang-ho, who has had big roles in several major Korean films, including Snowpiercer, The Host, and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, just for starters. Uh, he is ordered to infiltrate a resistance cell, where he, he encounters resistance fighter Kim Woo Jin, played by Gong Yu, who is the star of Train to Busan, the uh, zombie action film that screened in Melbourne a few months ago. This is a plot-heavy film with lots of double crossings. The Age of Shadows also contains some large-scale action and spectacle set pieces, which I think is where director Kim Ji-won has... That's the area he's always really excelled in. Absolutely. Did you enjoy yeah. The Age of Shadows, Emma? I did. I, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Um, I found that... Uh, in some ways, it felt like, and I say this with trepidation, his most sensible film, because um, he can be very grandiose and over the top. I mean, if anyone saw Kim Ji Woon's "I Saw the Devil," they will know what I mean. That's the only recent film of his I haven't seen. You haven't seen? No, that's all right. One of the few I haven't. I've seen most of his other films. Okay. Well, I saw the Devil. Fantastic. I mean, you know, mind-blowing, but it does, uh, like, every uh, interaction between the enemies sort of resulted in death, yet they still managed to walk away without a bruise. And I kind of only accept that if there's hopping vampires and that, have, and you know, you know what I mean. Chinese That's, ghost story yeah, style films. Yeah, yeah, if that, it was still centred in a realistic environment and it just went way, way over the top. But this is... Strangely, I don't know about you, but I kind of, I kind of could imagine it as a Spielberg film without the cloying sentimentality 
towards the end. It kind of played like a bit of a Bridge of Spies or um, and a bit of Munich even, although it's not the same era as Munich. It was late 1920s, this is said, during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Yep, that's, that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, I just got this feeling it had that kind of, you know, it really set up the time, uh, the set pieces, the, the, the time, the sepia toned, you know, films of that, that ilk of that era, um, of the photographic era tend to be sepia toned to really sell it. And, um, it just had that kind of trench coaty bridge of spies feel going on and the and the different allegiances and so on as well um i had a little bit of a problem following it i don't think you're alone okay all right yeah, so I, I i'm was, not too stupid no look I, I had the same problem and i had a quick look online that seems to be the consensus oh, okay, it's a very good. convoluted film narrative wise yeah yeah and the korean names for us silly white people make it a little harder to to go oh that's so and so but I, I think that i managed to just relax into it and uh, go, uh, you get the general gist, you know, you get the broad allegiances and let's not get too bogged down in the details. And then you have these beautiful sequences like that incredible train sequence, which um, just, I love train sequences on movies anyway, and not just subway train sequences, but long overground passenger train sequences and this was one of those i love the the, the train sequence as well and it seems to be big in south korean cinema i mean Snowpiercer yeah. was entirely set on a train train to busan was almost all set on a train the best sequence of one of his of um um this director uh i've, I've gone blank sorry uh, kim ji Woon, yeah. one of his earlier films the good the bad and the weird opens with that's a the one i haven't seen so oh well that opens yeah. with a magnificent train sequence oh wonderful okay so he's kind of giving a bit of a nod back to that i think trains because you have that you know velocity of the train moving through uh the speed of that you have the cramped environment yet you still people can move around a train better than they can move around uh an airplane so it's really ripe for cinematic pickings. Yeah, and look, you've often got that really great metaphor, which which um, Snowpiercer pushed to the absolute absolute maximum, which is you know they are class divided carriages as well, and, yes. and um, yeah, the trains are fascinating symbol in in cinema. So often it's the symbol of progress. I mean, it's huge in American cinema as this is what is going to conquer the West. This is a symbol of progress. Where in European cinema, if it, it's often a very menacing thing because it was, yeah. of course, the trains. Uh, during World War Two, which which took people away to to, to their deaths, so yeah, I, I don't yeah. quite know what the what the significance of the train is in South Korea, but it it it, it pops up again and again in these films, and it works, it works, <laughs> it works. I mean, there's lots of great train sequences in films. I think there was one actually. Alex isn't here. I was going to bring it up with her, but there was um, Sleepless, the Dario Argento film. <laughs> I know she loves that one, and there was another particularly nasty train film called, I think, The Night Train Murders from 1975. That was Aldo Lardo. My Italian accent will be terrible there, but. Um, all stunning strangers on a train. Yeah, yeah. Um, the general, Buster Keaton. What's one there? Train arriving at the station. Yeah, train arriving at the station. Let's go back to the Meliers. Who did that? Wasn't Meliers. That was. We should. We should know this. I think that may have been a Lumiere brothers. Oh yeah, yeah, 
I think, I think you're right. They, yep. do, they do the realist stuff. Yeah. Yes, do the fantasy stuff, yeah. yeah. Look, it's really interesting to hear you say that you, you thought the age of Shadows was uh, Kim Ji-Woon's more sort of respectable and sensible film. I think that's the biggest problem I had with it. With it. I, I wanted it to be a little bit more trashy and spectacle-focused. This guy directs action beautifully. Like, no matter how busy and how much is going on in the frame of his action Sequences and they're off. There's often a hell of a lot going on. There's always this complete clarity. You always know what's happening. It's not what we often deride as, say, the Michael Bay effect, where it's just rapid, choppy editing and it's the illusion of excitement. You can't actually follow any Anything. of the action. Yeah. <laughs> where in this film and his other films, you can follow what's going on. I, so I wanted more of the elaborate gunfights and crazy crowds of people running across across rooftops. Yeah. Um, right. it, it's almost. I almost had the opposite reaction to this film to um, another film which came out this week, which we're not going to go into depth and too much, is Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> because that film has the illusion of, of prestige film, but it's so utterly trashy. And, and the, the war sequences in that film is so... Sh- shockingly schlocky mm-hmm. so I had the inverse reaction to that where I just wanted that to be more respectable where I wanted Age of Shadows to go a bit more yeah, yeah a bit more yeah. gunfighting well strangely I saw a bit of Spielberg in uh, Hacksaw Ridge there I think it was uh, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, Schindler's List with the just one more with this I oh, could it's, just it's like Schindler's more. List meets the thin red line but trashy thin red line and Forrest Gump yeah oh, yeah 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 <laughs> We, we, we're doing well, so we're, so we're not going to cover Hacksaw Ridge. No. <laughs> and here we are, shoehorning it into the Age of Shadows. Uh, hey, tell me what you... Th- there's an amazing sequence towards the end of this film where they use the, you know, Bolero. Oh, yes. Amazing piece of yes. music for a big spectacle sequence. It's a big... I mean, that, that, that piece of music just creates a sense of momentum and build. Yep. And it's a scene where we're very much encouraged to cheer... Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically an act of terrorism. It reminded me of the scene in the end of Inglorious Bastards with uh, Shoshana and the David Bowie track. And that's a this, brilliant comparison. Yeah, yeah. Did in it? Did did. In, I'm trying to remember Inglorious Bastards. Was it just members of the Nazi Party and and um, yeah officers getting shot, or was it sort of their their family and as well? Oh. Oh, good. Oh, you're bringing in that level of detail? I don't know. Yeah. I know it was members of the party, but yeah. I'm not sure if their family was well, part of it. Yeah, That's a good comparison because this film is, and I, again, reading some of the other press about it, this is a very... Um, Oh, it's, it's a piece of patriotism for the South Koreans, very much depicting the Japanese as the cartoon villains. And we've, before you came on board, we discussed this in relation to the Chinese film Ip Man, which yeah. also is that, yeah, the, the Chinese don't have a terribly good relationship with Japanese historically either. And in that film, yeah. they're almost cartoonish villains as well. And it, it's always, I always grapple with this and I um, and I, I can't help think if we are okay in the West with the Nazis being cartoonish villains in so many films, then what's so bad about this? I mean... Exactly. exactly. I think it, I don't know, it wasn't quite as heavy handed in The Handmaiden and I believe you and I weren't involved in that discussion. We weren't on that show, were no, we? No, no. No, it wasn't as heavy handed in The Handmaiden. No, but there was a bit of that discussion because The Handmaiden is set at a very similar time. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, it was fun. It was it was yep. fun film. I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was his masterpiece, but still, it was good. 
थ्री ट्रिपल आर American Honey is the new film by Andrea Arnold, whose previous films include Fish Tank and Wuthering Heights. Arnold is an English filmmaker, and American Honey is her first U.S. film set on the road in the American Midwest. Most of the cast are non-professional actors, including its star Sasha Lane, whom Arnold spotted on a beach. Lane plays Star, a teenage girl who joins a team of travelling magazine sellers who divide their time between partying hard and using dubious methods to sell magazine subscriptions door to door. Two notable established actors in the cast are Shia LaBeouf as Jake, the charismatic salesman who recruits Star, and Riley Keough as Crystal, who runs the whole enterprise. As per most of her previous films, Arnold shoots in a 1.37 to 1 aspect ratio, giving the screen a more box-like, intimate frame. And she adopts a handheld, almost cinema verite style of shooting that, along with the presence of a large non-professional cast, gives American Honey a naturalistic quality. What I found most interesting about the film is that it is about a section of American society that is extremely poor and disenfranchised, and yet the young people in this film are relentlessly pursuing the American dream. Exactly, exactly.、Um, I think, look, this Andrea Arnold, she has this amazing ability to tell stories that aren't her stories. They're stories of people that live so. A diff, such a different life to her, and、um, I mean, she's a fifty-odd-year-old、uh, English actress come, turned、um, turned filmmaker. So, a story about、uh, American youths,、uh, disenfranchised youths, is a long way away from her actual reality, as is it from my reality. Yet, I felt totally invested with this film. I was in there for the journey. I was,、uh, I felt familiarised with them. I felt, and something that we'd already mentioned each, to each other, Thomas, was in terms of the music. Even the music used, it's not my music. It's not my story. Yet they, it all works so well in the context of the film that you're excited by it, and、uh, and that's what I really loved about this film. That's a really good point to make. I mean, this is so far removed from our reality. I mean, that they they come from a very poor class. That um, you know, there is an equivalent in Australia, but it's not the same as it is in America. And regardless, it's not one I will ever pretend to be able to identify with. Um, and and they they come that their cultural references are completely removed from mine. I mean,、uh, apart from a handful of tracks <laughs> like the one we just played and one I might play later on, yeah, most of the music is stuff I really dislike. It's um, you know, it's that kind of contemporary R and B and sort of contemporary gangster rap, which which just just doesn't push my buttons. And yet, I loved it in the context of the film because she showed. The excitement that it generates amongst these characters, and、yep. it's so infectious. Yeah.、Um, and you know, I, I, I often get annoyed when it, it's become a bit fashionable. This this kind of aspect ratio, which is a bit like what you see on it, it's it's what you, you used to get on old TV sets. This this more narrow aspect ratio, it's starting to creep into. It's become a bit fashionable to do that, but she's been doing it for quite a while now. And her rationale is: it's so intimate, only one person can ever properly fill the frame at the time. Yeah, and she does that with Star, makes her front and center of this film. I think she calls it a portrait、um, oh, aspect. Yeah, That's why she's. It's、aspect. like making. It's an actual portrait of a person. And it, 
Gee, does it work? It does. Yeah, it, 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 it does. It works pro- pro- profoundly well. I mean, so much of this film is just people on this bus smoking, getting high, and singing along to music I don't particularly like, <laughs> and I loved it. Yeah, I would say the only the only uh, uh, criticism I had of it was that it was far too long. I think that uh, it it had uh, epic length, and it was a little lovely, warm hearted. Uh, scary film in some ways that required, didn't need that sort of length. There were a lot of natural ends in it. Um, there were a lot of places where it could have been edited back. And I think that there was a little bit of precious, preciousness on her behalf. No doubt there was some great stuff that was caught that you don't want to let go and that's often a problem with filmmakers to be able to let go of uh what they've what they've created and bring it back into a really tight package i yeah look i, I really felt the length of this film towards the end i mean I, I agree i think it is that little bit too long but having said that the moment when i became really aware of oh god this film is still going is also the moment star the lead character starts to feel the monotony of the lifestyle as well and it wasn't too long after that that the film wrapped up so i kind of thought uh, if that was the intention then well played because (laughs) i had a a similar experience to it all that 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 she did yeah 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 Um, it, it I like the way that it also presented. See, Star was um, Star was really the only truly honest character in it. Like it was like they were all running away, living this honest lifestyle, but it wasn't. She was the <laughs> only one who really called them on certain aspects and couldn't do the lies that required for selling. When she sold stuff, she sold stuff honestly. People knew where she was at, what she was asking for, and had no illusions that she was some college student trying to, you know, raise money for i don't know a college charity or whatever they were saying but it also had um in terms of we've talked about the music um i think the the way the music was contextualized Uh, andrea arnold works really well with body movement and she somehow manages to capture dance and non-dance body movement sequences so well and the introduction to Shia LaBeouf who Biff LaBeouf LaBeouf Tech um, who I think probably a lot of us have been critical for in terms of we've already mentioned Michael Bay tonight (laughs) Um, Transformers and the like has really been reinventing his career and and he's just so good in this he's really plays a a well-rounded character that you both love and hate at the same time he has an awful hairstyle um (laughs) yeah and yet he pulls out and I, i have to give it to him i mean sasha lane as an inexperienced actress obviously the director would have had a lot to do with pulling the performance out of her but also she acts so well with Shia LaBeouf so we couldn't discount that he would have had such an influence on bringing out that performance in her as well so I was was just so impressed with that he's incredible in this film and I I think I've never been anti uh, I, I mean i quite enjoyed him in um nymphomaniac um yes but yeah. that that wasn't really the you know his mainstream that's films. not what he gets to write <laughs> yeah you're right no i haven't seen a lot of the films he's derided for uh 
and the ones I have seen, you're right, they're not great. Yeah. But um, this just shows he's an actor who's still in the game. I mean, and he's probably got his best work ahead of him yet because he's magnificent in this film and he blends seamlessly in with this cast of unprofessional actors. Like, he's just as rough around the edges as they are. Yeah. And you're right, you, you do, he, he, you're suspicious of him uh, for good reason, but you also kind of love him. And he just has this, dare I say, sexual energy that... He does. He, he just burns off the screen in this film. He does. And there is something so appealing about him, even with his rat's tail. Even with the rat's tail. And the, you, so you b- believe the romance, the romance, well, it is a romance that yeah. occurs, a romance of sorts. Um, and he kind of plays her, he's the hero. He plays He plays her hero in it. He falls into that kind of classic hero role. Well, he's the one she wants to be the hero. She Well, yes, yeah. yes. But that's nicely the way that um, Andrea, Arnold does makes these films is you can imagine someone like Larry Clark taking it and just making it <laughs> icky. Yeah. Yet she doesn't do that and she sets up scenarios which we won't uh, talk about because don't want to wreck them but you can feel it you just think oh this is going somewhere so bad but she doesn't take it to the cliched bad area it's not necessarily good but she doesn't push it into overblown storytelling. I think there's a handful of moments where she may revel a little bit in the poverty of the characters mm. and, and, and the grittiness. Like the fact that Star Star's dream is to own her own trailer as opposed to her home. I, I cringe <laughs> a bit at that line. And just shots of, you know, they, they all stop the, stop the van to take a piss by the Grand Canyon. I thought that that, that <laughs> symbolism was a little bit much, and um, th- th- these are minor quibbles. Actually, another another visual element we haven't mentioned is the the insects in the film. Oh, constant, constant shots constant. of insects, and mm. curiously, often insects in distress that Star rescues. Yeah, she rescues. Yes, and that taps into mm. what you're saying about she's the only honest character in the film. Who she's also probably the most caring character in the film, and she starts off in a caring role that she's been reluctantly thrust into, and mm. it's a bit heartbreaking when she has to escape from that. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, details like that is help what, it, what helps to endear us to her and to to the film. But the thing I really was curious about is I mentioned in, in that intro is that um. Uh, you know, and I'm stealing this idea of, another, of, of an interview I read. You know, unlike say the counterculture, as we saw in films like Easy Rider, where they're they're dropping out, they're running away from the American dream. These are kids desperately wanting it, yeah. and and their whole rhetoric is a combination of this kind of motivational business talk wank that they get from Crystal yeah. and and hip hop lyrics. And a lot of the hip hop music in the film is that kind of aspirational, going to get all the money type stuff. And a lot of those songs, the line between how much they're aspirational or how much they're parody, how much their wish fulfilment is often very blurry and that's what makes that such an interesting genre of music. But these are kids who who believe all this stuff. They're going to be players. They're going to be big time and that's why why they're doing this. And that's a fascinating thing about America and American capitalism is that you know, the, the capitalism is its success because it doesn't make people into millionaires, but it makes everybody think they might be able to be become a millionaire. Exactly. And it's probably even more so now in terms of that American dream, you know, where, where we've got the Trump 
standing up there and selling that we're going to be great again everyone's going to have this opportunity and and yeah and they and they buy into it but they also they have uh, a tiny little capitalist culture going on this little microcosm which Riley Keough is the matriarch of and she's such a fascinating presence in this film she's amazing when you contrast it to something like Mad Max Fury Road very different character although I believe she did play a similar type of character alpha female in another another movie that I mm. I can't recall at the moment but um, she's kind of this valley girl struts around in bikinis looks like she's stoned the entire time but has his iron fists kind of grasp over these kids absolutely Even makes them fight each other at one point exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> the ones that don't make the the most money on the day so um yeah, look, I, I loved it. I, re- I really loved it. I thought it was a great film. I really disappeared into it. I had a kind of uh, American Honey experience in the cinema where I I was in there with one other person who came down to greet me in the one of the front aisles and said, are you watching this alone? Maybe you'd like to watch it with me. And I said, and a very young man, and I said, okay, uh, worrying that he was going to talk all the way through the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I would not have anything to say right now. Uh, instead, he just sat there very nicely with his Zen Buddh- Buddhism book and uh, didn't say a word and then thanked me for watching the movie with him at the end. And I felt that was sort of fit in somehow with the film. unconventional moment. Exactly. It was right. Yeah. It was right. I channeled the movie <laughs> in Palace Como. No, I hear you. I, I, I was completely lost into this film, just, just found myself sinking into it and just enjoying the moments of this film continuously. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We now come to Rosemary's Baby. Released in 1968, it was Polanski's fifth feature film and the first film made solely in the US. It was produced by B-movie maestro William Castle and adapted from a novel by Ira Levin, who also wrote the source material for The Stepford Wives and The Boys from Brazil. Rosemary's Baby was an early film role for Mia Farrow, who stars as a young mother-to-be who increasingly suspects that the other tenants in the apartment block where she lives are witches who want to do harm to her baby. John Castavetes co-stars as Rosemary's husband Guy and Ruth Gordon won an Academy Award for her supporting role as one of the neighbours Rosemary comes to suspect. Um, now, after watching this so soon, after watching Repulsion, which we discussed on last week's show, it was fascinating to see how many stylistic devices Polanski repeats to indicate things such as dream sequences and the lead character's anxiety, not to mention the prevalent mood of dread where things just get progressively worse. <laughs> sure I suppose don't. maybe the big difference is in Polanski's baby. It's more explicit where the source of Rosemary's trauma is coming from. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, Rosemary, I think, is presented as a child, child woman, but she's sane at the beginning. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah, as opposed to to Carol in Repulsion, who's already starting to buckle under the pressure of whatever she's suffering from. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, But like 
so this is the New York film we had, London in Repulsion, if anyone listened to what we were talking about last week. And it is very much solely in an apartment, although it starts with that beautiful uh, New York skyline with the pink credits. Uh, it's over a stunning top. opening it is. sequence. It's beautiful. Yeah, it must have it's been beautiful. a very elaborate crane shot, I'm guessing. I, I'm guessing too, yes. yes. These drones weren't invented then. No, no, not at all. And we <laughs> then we but then we come into this uh it, this apartment, but this is not any apartment. Now the thing with Rosemary's baby is there's a lot of uh fact mirroring fiction, real life m- m- uh mirroring uh mirroring can't say that word, uh, cinematic life and um, whether it's coincidence, whether it's the work of Satan, I'll let you work that out because <laughs> many people have speculated on oh, that. Is this one of those films with all sorts of myths about... Oh, God, yeah. Oh, is, is this a cursed film? Oh, yes. I had no idea. It's, it's another poltergeist, right? Yeah. So, well, the building, the apartment building is the Dakota building, which is... Um, also famous because uh, John Lennon lived there and John Lennon was assassinated at its door in 1980. Was that when John Lennon was assassinated, I'd say? Anyway, Rosemary's Baby um, preempted that so we could say that there's, uh, you know, a little bit of that going on. We also had um, Mia Farrow was married to Frank Sinatra at the time that she went on to this film and Frank Sinatra did not want her to make this film at all. I didn't know that. That's right. Yeah. 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 And basically their marriage broke up over it because she was dangled, the filmmakers dangled uh, an Oscar in front of her saying this will win you the Oscar, which it didn't. It won Ruth Gordon, rightly, an Oscar. Um but strangely, it mirrors the character, her husband in the film. If you think about the sacrifices that um, Cassavetti's character of Guy makes as an actor in order to achieve fame, you could say it's very <laughs> similar to what Mia did. Then, of course, we have all the Satan play and we have that dreadful incident that occurred to Roman Polanski and his family, friends in 1969, a year after this film was released, which was the Manson murders and Sharon Tate being pregnant at the time and being murdered in a rather awful way. So, I had no idea this film had that kind of baggage. Oh, it does. I, I have to admit, I was fascinated by the fact that the that one of the lead one of the main supporting characters is named Roman Castavet. It is interesting, isn't it? Now, he's definitely the biggest source of threat in this film. He mm-hmm. has the first name of the director, yep. and his surname sounds very similar to the surname of... Cas- yeah, John Castavetti's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure whether that was in the book or not, uh, in Ira Levine's book, um, so I can't confirm that, but that would be a very odd thing if it was... Um, thinking probably Roman Polanski did that on purpose. It really feels like that because this is what really struck me about this film is this is a gaslighting film. Mm-hmm. This is a film about a, a bunch of primarily driven by her husband and the wider community convincing this woman that she's going mad. Yes, it is. Yeah, whereas um, Catherine Deneuve in Repulsion sort of did it of her own accord. She managed to just get caught up in her own head. Um, I think this film plays out more in terms of, of course, there was, they were trying to have the birth of Satan's child. That's why that she was basically rendered um, 
uh, she was ignored. She mm. was, no one took notice of her opinion, no one, because they were trying to railroad her in a certain direction. But it also really reflects probably the way a lot of housewives at the time would have been treated. And um, she is... She is dismissed. She's dismissed by her husband. Um, she is dismissed by the older w- women. And this is a thing uh, I think that plays out really strongly in it, the older women versus the younger women. And it seems to be a jealousy that she is the one that can procreate. She has a power that they that they are very jealous of. And there's even one discussion where um, I think one of the characters who's uh, Laura Louise, plays played by Patsy Kelly, comes in with Ruth Gordon to the house to have a sort of women's talk with um, with Rosemary. And um, they actually talk about periods. And uh, they, they even are jealous in that regard. They say oh, you're so lucky you can move around on the first day of your period, I I was stuck on the couch or whatever the character says. That's a really alarming thing to hear in a film from the mid-60s, you know. People just didn't talk about that. Yeah, look, I'm not nearly as familiar with this film as many other people. I'd only ever seen it once before. And I was a bit shocked when I looked up that it's a 68 film. I assumed it was about a decade later. Yeah. Because there are some very, yeah, some some of the themes and issues in this are are pretty intense for for the late 60s. I mean, this was technically still the beginning of New Hollywood, but yeah. still, there's some confronting ideas. And um, and what really occurred to me is how much this film, um, this and The Shining, I think, are both really extra- extraordinary film. I, I abuse the word extraordinary, you'll come to realise. <laughs> uh, 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 are both really powerful films where once you remove the supernatural element, they're basically films about domestic violence. So oh, The yes. Shining is about a man who 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 um, is physically violent to his family, where Rosemary's Baby is a film about a husband who is psychologically and emotionally violent to his wife. I mean, there's the whole gaslighting thing. Him, but um, but you know, he's constantly undermining her confidence and sense of self. And you know, some of the hail Satan stuff is dated ever so slightly in this film. But what I found really disturbing were just some of the more benign scenes where she comes home with a new haircut, and he just. He just, he's horrible to her. He just talks about what a stupid thing... I can't remember the exact words, but he's just so casually belittling to her. Yes. And I think this, this is a really potent um, depiction of that form of domestic abuse where it's more oh, on the emotional absolutely. level. I think that one of the, the scenes that I find constantly shocking is where it's essentially uh, a case of spousal rape that's just really dismissed um and Again, so casually yes yeah yeah and made to be sort of so acceptable which probably at at the time it was expected i mean i know that in australia spousal rape didn't wasn't uh, against the law until or recognised as as a thing until the eighties. You yeah. know that's an un- unbelievable thing. So yeah, these these this stuff that comes out in a very simple film. I mean, it tracks very simply. It starts almost like a soap opera, and and then just slowly devolves into these crazy crazy stuff and beautiful dream sequences as well. They're not too heavy handed. There's only a couple of them, but they dreams or are they yeah. uh, that work so that so clock well ticking again that we get in repulsion the clock ticking yes well i mean the main sequence in this kind of starts off as a dream mm-hmm. um and again it's quite surreal like the, the kind of imagery she's conjuring up in her dream doesn't really have any grounding in anything no. but, but then it moves into something that may or may not 
actually be happening. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and the cast, I think I have to say, I can't get off the air without saying how delightful Ruth Gordon is in this. Well, when I say delightful, <laughs> I mean as in as an actress because she does play an absolutely awful character, but she is a character. Yeah. She's a total character. And there's a moment where she walks up as Minnie Castavets with Roman Katzavets, her husband, the first time we really see them where they walk up and there's a low camera angle and they, they're actually coming up to find out that someone has died, um, committed suicide from the building and they are just this picture of, I can imagine them in that book Humans of New York or something <laughs> like that, that you yep. just go, look, look at these characters. Yep. And she plays the snoopy, cloying, the older woman so, so, so well. She really does drive it and she's a big part of it, as is Cassavetes, who just mm. plays that role perfectly. You just believe him in everything from going from the husband to going to the egomaniacal actor. Um, superb. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, if the yes. story was from his point of view, we'd be calling this a Faustian film. Yes, yes. But yeah, yeah. Yes, Very exactly. Much so. so for me, I have to say, this is probably one of my um, favourite films of all time. It's probably in my top ten. Yeah. So it's not a film it, A film for me, it's the film, basically. Oh, I'm glad we got to cover it then. Yes. And I'm glad I, I got too. to... Yeah, like I said, I've only ever seen it the once. Um, and it was interesting watching it the second time knowing how it all pans out but forgetting all the details yeah um it was still a profound experience and yeah and like repulsion it's not a film where you're waiting for things to go right again or you're waiting for a hero to ride in or the situation to sort itself out you're just watching this descent like it just you, keeps getting worse and worse you're watching the. T- i think that you see progression of um polanski as a filmmaker here though because mm. that it just culminates into an end that is not um, big explosions, grand gestures of any sort, but it is one of the most chilling, unnerving scenes that you could ever come across. And bravo to him. It's amazing. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas Cordwell and Emma Westwood. Hopefully we'll have more of the team with us next week. Yes. Although we did rather well tonight, I think. Oh, it's been nice. (laughs) Intimate like over a cup of tea. Exactly. Thank you kindly for for joining us. The Age of Shadows is on limited release through Madman Entertainment. American Honey is on limited release through Universal Pictures. And Rosemary's Baby is screening twice uh, twice more as part of the Roman 10 times Polanski season that is currently on at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. The film is screening courtesy of Paramount Pictures. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station 3RRR 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.